Just before we start, this episode contains references to violence, drug abuse and other adult themes that some people might find upsetting and which are probably not suitable for younger ears. Hello, I'm Graham Norton and you are so very welcome to this edition of my book club. We have, I think it's fair to say, an eclectic mix of stories to sift through. Here to help me find my way through this magical forest of fiction is the dropper of literary breadcrumbs extraordinaire, Sarah Collins. Hello. Hello. Am I Hansel or Gretel? Are you Gretel? (laughs) I'm the old witch. (laughs) Um, Now, you poor thing, you've been in the wars, I believe. I have. Well, I celebrated turning 50 in fine fashion by breaking one ankle and spraining the other quite badly. Was it on the dance floor? I'm going to say it was. I was trying to exercise, which is something you should never do after turning 50. And so it started with me, a dumbbell and a step platform, and it ended with the very handsome paramedic Lamar looming over my sweaty gym gear clad body and <laughs> and me just thinking, could my mortification get any more, <laughs> any more complete? Oh no. In fact, it did because it was then followed by my daughter sprinting down the road. Luckily, she just lives uh, around the corner on the phone to 999 saying, my mum's 50, she's fallen and she can't get up. (laughs) (laughs) But they were already here. (laughs) But you're you're on the mend, we hope. I'm on the mend, yes. Good, good, good. We send healing vibes. And, And at least your ankle breaking was accidental, which might not have been the case in the rather violent world of our book this week. It's The Khan by Simon Mir, which takes us inside the underworld of the north of England and introduces us to Gia Khan, newly appointed head of the family crime cartel. Here to discuss it are our very own mob of clubbers, Jared, who chose it for us, Jeff, Cherie, and Shivan. Hello, everybody. Hey. Hi. And uh, Shivan, you might have to dash off, I believe. There might be a medical thing happening in your life. Yes. Well, hopefully not. Uh, my wife is expecting our second child in oh, wow. two months to the day. So. Oh, you've got two months. Two oh, months, right, fine. Yeah. If I had to dash off, I would yeah, be concerned. Okay. Uh, any words of wisdom from Jeff, father of 11? <laughs> Jeff, genuinely, is the second one easier than the first one? Is that true? Because I have yeah. heard... It is. That is absolutely <laughs> true, yeah. Uh, Quite a few people told me the opposite. Uh, let's see, the first four, the labours got shorter and shorter, and then they went back up again. Wow. On our last time that we actually went into the delivery suite, we actually worked out that we'd been at more births <laughs> than the midwife. <laughs> uh, and Cherie, I must I'll catch up with you, because you were dashing off to go on a date the last time yeah. we spoke. <laughs> yes, I was. Oh, no. The date was great. I've been ghosted. I'm a, a millennial. I'm always getting ghosted. <gasps> Chivalry's dead. I know. Can we put out some kind of appeal? <laughs> He's missing. Not for him, just anyone else. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Yeah, like Battersea dog sound, <laughs> but for me. You stop it now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jared, any tales from the uh, the coal face of book sales? Oh, um, I ran into Haley from Corrie. Um, that was great. <gasps> But then I was like, is it Corey or is it Emmerdale? Because my mum watched all three of them when I was younger. I say all three. I call them the big three. Emmerdale, Coronation Street and EastEnders. Of course, yes. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, she was just lovely. It was weird how nice she was about it. Told me to say hi to my mum for her. And that was great. So I rang my mum all happy after meeting Julie, her. Julie Hesman-Holch, isn't that her name? Yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's her name. That's yeah. who played Hayley. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, there you go. And listen, we'll be back with you later on to find out whether the con was an offer you couldn't refuse or if it should be sleeping with the fishes. After we've spoken to Simon Mir herself and after Sarah has given us her three of her best. Uh, what have you got for this time, Sarah? I thought what Simon's novel did really well was give us an immersive experience of a particular community. Um, and so I went on the hunt for three of my favourite novels, also by British Pakistani writers that kind of do the same thing, although one is a cheat. I always have one cheat. Always. Well, we looking forward to that. And uh, talking of cultural norms. In all the years I knew her, I never once saw the Queen Mother in trousers. It was always a tweed skirt, cotton or cashmere twin set, pin-tuck curls and dependable shoes, navy or brown. I loved the tea-cosy warmth of Her Majesty. It was no secret she wasn't one of the great beauties of her age, but she had the most surprising grace and poise. Unlikely as it seems, this lovely little pudding of a lady was actually poetry in motion. Susanna Constantine is probably best known as one half of Trini and Susanna, who kept us on this sartorial straight and narrow in the wonderfully addictive makeover show What Not to Wear. But there's a lot more to her than hemlines, as she reveals in her spicy autobiography, Ready for Absolutely Nothing. She'll tell us more about that later on in Talking Books. All right, time for some crime and the con. Jia Khan is a successful London lawyer, brilliantly defending guilty men a long way from the northern city of her childhood. But there are issues from her past. She hasn't spoken to her father, Akbar, or her husband, Elias, for 15 years. She has a son, Ahad, she's never met, and probably most importantly, she is the eldest child of the largest and most powerful criminal family in the northwest. They run a multi-million pound operation dealing in drugs and prostitution, but they also help the police keep control of the streets. Although she's cut herself off from the family and their business, Gia is persuaded to return home for her sister's wedding. While she's there, Akbar is murdered, and as his eldest child, Gia is expected to take his place, not only as the head of the family firm, but as the leader of the Jirga, the powerful council of local crime families which keeps its own code of honour and dispenses its own brand of justice. This is a deeply traditional community that takes pride in its culture and feels totally let down by a racist white legal system. Akbar's death comes at a particularly critical time because there's a new villain in town. Novak is a ruthless and evil threat to the status quo. He must be put in his place. It's time for the next Khan to step up, but is Gia willing to do it? Simon Mir is an award-winning journalist who started her career at Bradford's Telegraph and Argus and went on to work for the BBC. In fact, the Khan started life as a screenplay, which Simon converted into a novel. When we spoke, I started with whether that was an easy thing to do. I feel as if this book took on a life of its own because I thought I was writing some light commercial fiction and turns out I wasn't. And I only realised that once it was edited and bound and I reread it that I'd written some kind of hard-hitting, dark, twisty crime book. You know, the whole process of writing the Khan and taking it on the road and talking to people about it has revealed a lot to me about myself. So I was just telling a story, the story I really, really wanted to tell, and I guess inside 
of me, there was all this material that was desperate to come out, and, and that's what it was. And it, it's interesting because obviously, you know, it's being sold as a crime thriller, and the, the cover, the packaging, it all says crime thriller. And yet, there's so much other stuff going on here. You know, the domestic stuff, the the family stuff, all of that. Is is that what really interests you more than the the crime? element. Yes, totally. That's exactly what interests me. So I come from a British Pakistani background and I just wanted to see people who were like me in in a book and that's kind of what I was writing. And the crime element of it for me was incidental and I didn't really know anyone in publishing so I didn't know how genres worked. So I just wrote the book I wanted to write. And then when it got to the publishers that's when they told me, "Ah, this is where it fits." And I'm really fascinated by the, the kind of the moral compass of this book, which is spinning, <laughs> because your goodies in most books would be baddies. Uh, how did you kind of tread that line between who we were rooting for? So when I was about 21, life was really black and white. And I was raised in this very conservative Muslim family. And this was right and that was wrong. And then as life happened to me, things got really, really confusing. And I wanted my main character, I wanted the protagonist to feel that way. And also, I was just tired of these Muslim women being represented as the carriers of faith or being oppressed. And so I wanted to write this woman who was conflicted and confused and she had her own moral compass and and maybe other people didn't understand it but to her she knew kind of where she was going. Jared Leachman who uh, chose the Khan as a a book club choice he has a question he says since Muslims have been demonized in Britain did you feel any pressure to portray Gia in a positive light to avoid kind of racist interpretations of the novel? So I think the the truth is I was just writing a story and I wasn't thinking of all the pressure. It's this idea of um, there shouldn't just be one story. There needs to be lots of stories and one person can't represent everything about everything. So I didn't really feel any pressure. Afterwards, I did think about it and think, all right, I've written this crime novel and this woman is a Muslim woman and she's a criminal. But I'd like to think it's just one story in a sea of other stories. Obviously, there's, there's violence in this book and terrible things happen. Uh, how aware were you of the reader, if you know what I mean, when you're doing that? You kind of think, how much can a reader take? How much separation do I need to put between these very violent scenes? That sort of thing. Very aware of that. I don't actually like violence. I don't actually like watching it on screen. I don't like reading it. But a lot of the stories that are in the Khan were actually stories that I'd reported on. I worked in uh, journalism for a long, long time and I covered a lot of dark stories. I I went to court, um, I sat in inquests and I suppose this is real life for, for a lot of people. I know as much as it's fantasy and it's a crime novel, but elements of it are things that genuinely have happened to people, as as horrible as it sounds. And I don't know what it says about me that I just didn't think of them as being difficult to read. I just wrote the story I could. I don't think they're too graphic. There's the aftermath for me rather than the actual incident happening. Uh, I hope that's what I've achieved. That's what I was trying to achieve. And obviously, as you were saying, you're, you're writing a story, you're in this book, you, you're you in the characters, you're doing all of that. But then you publish it and you put it out into the world. Um What's the reaction been like from the Muslim community? Are they pleased that this big hit book is in the world? So, interestingly, every, I haven't had a bad reaction from anyone who is Muslim or British Pakistani. 
or female. And I think it's because there's a real hunger for more stories and representation that differs from the stereotype. Because we're not a monolith, we're not this homogenous group of people, we're so different. Uh, and so they've been waiting, and people are the same. Um, I think the core of what makes people human is the same, regardless of our, our gender or our sexuality or our race. And what we want is stories, and what we want to do is sit in front of a fire and read a book that's interesting, or watch a Netflix series uh, that just captures our imagination. So that's kind of been the reaction, really. Yeah. And also I was struck that there's a kind of a civic pride to it. Like the families, they care about place. They care about where they are. They totally care about place. I mean, I grew up in in Bradford in West Yorkshire and, uh, you know, a British Pakistani community. And they absolutely care about that city. And I think crime families do care about where they come from. Uh, they have a sense of this is where we belong. This is the place that made us good and bad. And uh, yeah, I hope the Khan reflects that. But it's also the reason it doesn't contain the word Bradford, because I felt that place had been maligned so much. And people already had a sense that they knew about it before they came to a story. And I didn't want that to happen. So I took that phrase out and then made it into a fictionalised northern city, which gave me a licence to write more. Uh, Jared also wants to know uh, he's keen, he's very keen he already wants to know what's the plan for the sequel any update on when it's going to be released So I have just finished the first draft of the sequel I'm due to hand it in to my editors at the end of this year and then we spend the next year editing coming up with a marketing plan and then it's released the year after so watch this space I can't really tell you what it's about yet uh, because there's a lot of editing to do but yes, it's on its way. And do you think you're going to stick to to crime novels? Are you surprised to find yourself sort of in that section of the bookshop? I'm totally surprised to find myself. Um, I am going to write whatever uh, people want to read. I love stories. I love telling stories that don't exist. I love talking about characters that don't get representation. Um, so I'll keep writing as long as people keep reading and as long as people keep wanting to buy those books. Uh, There's some questions we ask everybody. Uh, uh, What was the book that turned you on to reading and what sort of age were you? So the book I first remember reading is called Where the Wild Things Are, which is a children's book, which I now read to my children, uh, which is about a little boy called Max, who's feral. And his mother calls him a wild thing. And then he sails away to where the wild things are and the wild rumpus. And he becomes the king of the wild things. And right at the end, he comes back and time hasn't passed and his supper is still on the table and it's still warm. And I read it now and it just reminds me of love, the love of family, where it doesn't matter what you do, they're still there. And the second book is uh, one that you think isn't well known enough, one that deserves more attention. So I don't know if it's not well known enough, but I think everybody should read the autobiography of Malcolm X because it's the story of a man who makes mistakes and admits to them. And I think that's such a big lesson that we need to learn in life to say, yeah, I did something wrong. And you know what? I'm going to reassess my where I stand on things. And I just think it's it's such an interesting take on one man's life and struggle. I was obsessed with him when I was a teenager. It was the one thing I used to try and find books with people who looked like me and I couldn't. And there was this little shop called Shared Earth. And in there, there was a world book corner. And that's where I discovered Malcolm X and I discovered all of his writings. And he was just stoic and he believed in what he was talking about. And he was a man of colour 
in a world where I couldn't read books by men of colour and who didn't really get the recognition he deserved in his life. And even now we're still interpreting him in so many ways. And the final book is the book that you love so much you have a kind of writer's jealousy about. You wish your name was on the front of it. It's a really tough question. I was thinking about it. And the only story I can absolutely remember that has never left me is actually a short story from a book called The Night Shift by Stephen King. And it's called Strawberry Spring. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a story about a man who he talks about when he was at college and there was a, a killing spree that's been going on. He just talks about it. He doesn't give any of the details. It's just him narrating this instance. And then he talks about how suddenly these spree has started again and he's scared to look in his the boot of his car. And it's just this line which just... I just love it. And I, I don't know why. It's just never, ever left me. It's just fantastic, fantastic short story. Simon Mir on her favourite reads and her very own successful first novel, The Khan. And Sarah, the book is shot through with rich detail about the traditions and struggles of the Pakistani community in the UK. And I believe you're looking at three other books that have that as as their backdrop. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think, well, in my opinion, anyway, these three writers have been at the vanguard of... Um, I heard someone put it this way recently, tearing up the cultural map in Britain, um, which is a good way to put it. But you could also say that they kind of showed us the landscape as it was, you know, revealed modern multicultural Britain and the British Pakistani contribution to it in the same way that I think Andrea Levy did for the Caribbean community, for example. So I'm very excited about the list this week. Okay, uh, kick us off. What's number one? Kicking us off is Kamala Shamsi with Home Fire. And it is a retelling of the myth of Antigone, but in the context of a British Muslim family, two sisters whose beloved brother runs away to join ISIS. And there are parts written from the brother's point of view, which I found astonishing. I mean, a real thing to attempt as a writer, but Shamsi manages to give us a very deep intimate portrait of the process of radicalization from the inside, from his perspective, in a way that almost encourages you to sympathize or at least to empathize with him. But it's also kind of a love story in the sense that one of the sisters enters into a relationship with the son of the home secretary who is blocking her brother's repatriation. He's mad about her. Uh, she's desperate for him, but for reasons that he doesn't really understand until her actual motives become clear. And that imbalance makes things really fraught and tense in a good way, which is what I loved about this novel. There's an urgency to it that's as much about love as about war. And those are two big themes, aren't they? They are. And I love that idea of, of fiction getting you inside how a mind becomes radicalised. Oh, God. It's astonishing. And I can't quite remember anything like it. It's a difficult perspective to pull off. I think what's interesting in the kind of link with the Khan is that what Simon Mirror did with that novel is to take you inside the mind of, you know, several criminals doing pretty unsavory things, but in a way that one could argue was sympathetic or empathetic, at least, to their motives. Uh, well, great first choice. Uh, what have you got next? So next up is Monica Ali, Brick Lane. 
this is about a young Bangladeshi woman who travels to England to meet and marry her husband. And I think of it as a kind of coming of age with a difference because the coming of age really happens well into adulthood. And it's England that transforms the protagonist and we witness that transformation. But um, it's also the story of her affair with a radical community activist. And so it takes you through the kind of heat of the developing attraction and then the cold reality of, of what that means and how it plays out. Again, a novel that evokes really particular, vibrant, interesting community so vividly that you feel as if it's picked you up and sat you in the East End while you're reading it. Um, for my money, it earns a place as one of the British modern classics. And it's one of those I put on the same sort of level in my list as Andrew Levy's Small Island, um, which I've had in, I think, in a previous episode. Yeah. These books change the landscape here because they helped us to see that a multicultural Britain is something that's worth investigating, I think, and worth celebrating. And I always sort of cite them as, as examples of how that kind of feeling starts in the arts long before it starts in Parliament or anywhere else. They led the way. But it's also just a wonderful love story. And in my opinion, the best kind of love story, because it's really about this woman finding a way to love herself and to accept herself. It's it's really poignant, beautiful, absorbing. All right. Uh, your final choice today, Sarah. Final choice today. This is the cheat because it isn't actually the immersive story of a community at all. It's the story of a marriage, the disintegration of a marriage. But it is by one of the best British Pakistani writers, Hanif Qureshi. He was best known, of course, as the screenwriter of My Beautiful Laundrette. And his novel, The Buddha of Suburbia, which I was going to do, but I decided to check out his more recent work, which I had kind of lost track of and discovered I like this one better, which might not be to my credit. It's intimacy. And it's about a man who's decided to leave his wife and his very young sons. And he's reflecting on his decision the night before he does it. It's just over 100 pages. And on every single page, he does or says something that makes your skin crawl. This man is odious. He's doing some truly despicable things. But if that doesn't put you off from cracking it open... (laughs) (laughs) It's only 100 pages. (laughs) You might find yourself seduced by the language of it. It's a book that brings Lolita to mind for me. And it will be a challenge for people who insist on reading only about likable characters. So I will just say it's a novel for people who understand that Lolita is one of the best English novels of all time and not people who want to ban it. Okay. Uh, Thank you very much, Zara. And just a reminder that if you've missed any of the details of the titles we've been talking about, just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the books that get mentioned on the podcast. Okay, time to do business with the Khan. The club is joining us to do the job are part-time librarian and full-time phone salesman Jeff Watson. Hello. Hello. Teacher and YouTuber Sheevan Davis. Hiya. Fashion writer, Ladies Lit Squad founder and northerner in the south, Cherie Millington. Hello. Hello. And former book blogger and current bookseller, Jared Leachman, who chose the book for us. Uh, so, Jared, how did you come across the, the Khan and uh, why did you think we should all read it? 
So I think I came across it reading The Bookseller, and it was advertised to me as the British version of The Godfather set up north. So that kind of sold me instantly. As soon as you start getting into it, you realize that the comparison is kind of skin deep. And then when you step below that, there's so many other layers there. It's so pertinent to um, British society in many different ways. That's what made me actually fall in love with the book. And the cover of the book, it sells it absolutely as a kind of crime thriller, as a gun, a splatter of blood. Is that what you were expecting from the book, Shivan? Yeah, it is sold very much as a crime novel. And actually, as Gerald said, it's, there's more to it uh, than that. It actually has, I think it fits into multiple genres. So I suppose I wasn't expecting it to be so political and I wasn't expecting it to take itself as serious as it did, perhaps. So in that way, it surprised me. For most of the book, it's really family story of Pakistani culture and, and the relationships between siblings and parents and children. It's not your typical crime novel in that regard at all. Jeff, what did you make of it? Was it a crime thriller or was it a family drama? What was your takeaway from this book? It was about crime, but I didn't find it particularly thrilling. I found some parts of it fairly unbelievable. In particular, uh, somebody getting used as a car park for supercars and then walking at his father's funeral a couple of days later was fairly unbelievable. Uh, it was an interesting story and it, it made me think in ways, so that's always good. Um, what did you think of Gia Khan, Cherie? Well, I secretly, I'm a quite a big fan of Martina Cole books and immediately it reminded me of the really strong female characters in those Martina Cole books, just not in the East End. But Martina Cole, they're always tough on the outside and then they've got like a heart that's just gooey and sticky, but Gia was hard through and through. I love that she's not perfect. She's definitely not perfect. She's like Lady Macbeth. Yeah, she's so complex <laughs> as a character, and I just love that, like, this is a crime family at the end of the day. And do you think Gia Khan works as a character, Sarah? I think one of the real strengths of this novel for me is something Saima herself mentions, which is that she's fed up of the expectation that because she's a British Pakistani writer, she's writing a stock character or some sort of universal representation of an entire community. I think it's an extremely valid and valuable point in particular for writers of colour because we do have that expectation placed on us. So what she's done is she's given us the kind of Muslim woman who will push against all your expectations of, you know, meekness and mildness and and good behaviour. I also think it's interesting in a context where women are judged more harshly, female characters in literature, for behaving badly than men, that she's given us a really badly behaving woman, which is still a brave thing to do. And a badly behaving woman who is in control, who's got power, who wants power in this kind of community is a really refreshing take. But I'm interested, Shri, do you think that if this was a man, if this was a crime boss... Um, a male crime boss, would he be a kind of romantic figure, uh, whereas Gia Khan isn't? No, because I do think that most crime novels or crime films, whatever, be they man, be they woman, there's always a rich interior life. Crime men are usually portrayed as real family men, so they've got that softer side. Maybe people do judge women more harshly, especially with the thing about motherhood it is jarring when a woman and she's a terrible mother she's an absent mother not apologetic to her child for abandoning him yeah we need characters to have light and shade and she was an ice queen so i i didn't like her either 
Shiva, did you think, in the end, does it work having this book entirely populated by what we call baddies? There's a very weird moral sense to this book. She seems to propose this argument that the Jirga and the Khan are the kind of lesser of two evils and that British society is far more evil than they are. And I can actually pinpoint the page number where I lost faith in the book entirely. And it was, the, it was page 208 where she sets up a social enterprise called the Opium Den. The logistics of that really confused me. It seems to suggest that it, this is somehow progressive. It just didn't make sense to me. They're making money from prostitution and from drug smuggling. And the local press love it. And I thought, <laughs> really? Like, would they really love it? And is it really that socially positive to create a social scheme where young British Asians can go and work for a crime family? I just, obviously, if that was satire, I would find it funny. But I don't think it was. I think that was supposed to be like a, a serious point that you know, the jerk are doing social good. I've always felt like... That is the problem, and that's what these stories address. It's that they always think they're good. That's why they trick themselves into doing what they're doing. And I guess with things like Breaking Bad and Peaky Blinders and um, so many of these kind of crime dramas, the whole thing is it's part of a bigger story. And I think that's part of the problem is that this is chapter one of, I'm assuming, three. I'm not exactly sure. So we don't get to see what I think is going to end up being the inevitable downfall of Geocon. You know, you can't just be a crime syndicate boss and just have a nice life. (laughs) Yeah, you rarely just retire. Yeah. (laughs) So you're essentially saying that you think the arc of the trilogy will actually, this will will all be kind of ironic and actually there'll be a punishment at the end for Gion. So basically what I'm saying is if Geocon just walks away into the sunset with her kid and her ex-husband, I will come back to you and I will apologise and buy you a pint (laughs) because that is not like, that is not how a story like this should end. It should be one of those tragic Sad stories, like a Macbeth, I guess. So, you know, we're talking about it as this crime novel, but actually so much of this book isn't about crime. It's about family. It's about emotional connections between family members. Shree, did the balance of those two things work for you? I feel like it was a bit heavier on the crime. The family I really liked and I did want to know about, but a lot of Gia's motivations or lack of, I just didn't get. So she abandoned her family, moved to London, where, by the way, she's got no friends, no connections, whatever. She can leave her high-flying job at the drop of a hat. The London thing really bothered me. I just thought, you've been down there for 15 years. How can you leave and no one misses you? She didn't quit her job. Are they still waiting for her? Isn't it more to do with the fact that she's a lawyer with this moral compass that guides her and then suddenly... The compass broke. The moral compass goes out the window and she has to go home to take charge of a crime syndicate, as, as, as you do. It was a fairly amazing arc from barrister to crime lord. You found the whole barrister thing quite hard to swallow. Yeah, I mean, one of my sons is actually training in the law at the moment and I said to him, could that happen? And he went, no. You don't get to walk into a job as a barrister without going through quite a long process of vetting, etc. So there's no way she could actually, as the daughter of a crime kingpin, she could walk into a job as a barrister. And so the whole basis of the story was quite ridiculous. And, I mean, lots of these books are kind of ridiculous and they've got crazy things happening in them. But was, did the plot carry you along, Jeff? No, the plot stopped me dead. Uh, I've got to say, halfway through, I actually stopped reading this book and I actually sat and I thought, why don't I like 
anybody in this story in any way, shape or form. We've got a, a top flight journalist who is remarkably uncurious about everything in life. Are you talking about the husband who reveals that he knew the whole time that she was a crime boss and is a journalist? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's absolutely it's just bizarre. There's so many different bits of it that are just kind of like scenes for TV. It's such a shame. It started off so strong. The opening scene, I was like, a sex worker in a burqa. This is, I've never read a story that's set in the Pakistani community, let alone a gritty crime novel. So it went from a 10 in my estimation all the way down the scale. Yeah, that's such a shame because I, I agree with you. The opening is really strong. Do you, do you think, Jared, that the book ever completely disguised its origins as a TV drama? No, but I think that's why I kind of like it. I like the link to TV and how I can see it as a TV drama because I watch quite a lot of crime dramas and I guess I'm I'm used to my share of ridiculous storylines. Yeah, when you say it, I'm just like, oh yeah, I guess it is kind of dumb. But then me reading it, I'm just like, I'm enjoying it. I'm having a good time. So yeah, I never really thought about it, to be honest with you. Because she even, those bits that she puts in to kind of uh, internalise the characters, to take it away from the TV drama, how did you find those sections? I think that the writing let it down, really. I think there were some interesting set pieces. You know, it, it left for me a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth at the end, particularly with going back to the racial politics of the novel. The number of times white privilege is personified as being on the people's necks and, you know, pushing people off cliffs. And I just didn't really buy that whole idea that, that the Jirga is is the response of this community to white privilege. That, was, that seems to be the subtext of the book, and it didn't hold up. A lot of response to white privilege is crime, because when you can't be accepted in wider society, but you still need to eat, you still need to make money, it kind of does divert people towards crime. I guess the way they portrayed crime as this big crime syndicate may not necessarily be the truth of everyday society, I guess my response to that is it's still supposed to be fiction. So I think that's why she chose this avenue because she knows it's very popular and a lot of people love crime syndicate stories. Well, I grew up in the area where it's set. A lot of it rang true for me the, about the youth and kind of the little asides with the restaurants and the shopkeepers and the, the buildings and the way that families lived. And I found that a lot more interesting than anything else in the book. I agree with that completely. I think the way she writes about the communities is, is the best part of the book. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's get to the uh, the point here. We've got to find out how likely you are to recommend this book to someone. I'm going to start with Jeff. Really? Why is that? Why is that great? <laughs> well, I think the only way is up. So uh, let's start with you. Yeah, yeah, this is true. Okay, basically, I'll give it a four. We have a four. Uh, she even higher or lower? I'd probably say the same. Yeah, it pestered me as I read it. So a four is my score. Four out of ten. Uh, better news from Cherie? No, probably not. I love that it was set in the Pakistani community. I love that it had a female protagonist. But yeah, it was a slog. So four. Uh, Gerard, are you still <laughs> in love with this book or uh, have the others ruined it for you? I think the points are all valid. And I think that's what I like about doing this podcast, to be honest with you. It's being able to have such different opinions. For me, I'll give it more of a 7, maybe a 7.5, depending on the person. Okay. Uh, moving on, let's find out what we're being treated to next week. It is the choice of Shivan. What have you got for us? I've chosen a book by the American writer Tobias Wolf uh, called Old School. 
it's about the process of becoming a writer and finding your own voice as a writer. And it follows essentially a young Tobias Wolf through his time at an exclusive boarding school in Pennsylvania, where there's a real culture of literature and creative writing. There's lots of comedy. There's a really interesting plot twist. And it's just really beautifully written. He's one of my favourite writers. So I hope people enjoy it. Okay. And of course, a window into your world, I guess. Uh, a, a world away from the leap boarding schools. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to that. That is Old School by Tobias Wolf. Uh, thanks, everyone, for discussing The Khan by Simon Mir. Talk to you along the way. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 So, time for talking books and some sociological insight. As far as I was concerned, you were one of two things, a Sloan Ranger or a New Romantic. Anything else fell outside my peripheral vision. Dissect either group and you'd find the schools we went to, the streets we lived on and what our parents did for money. As a Sloan, the clothes I wore were bought and paid for by someone else. The clothes worn by the New Romantics were homemade, borrowed or saved for. We were two different tribes neatly representing Britain's social and economic divide, the haves and have-nots. In the 80s, Susanna Constantine was a Sloan Ranger who dated Viscount Lindley and Imran Khan and hung out at Balmoral with Margaret Thatcher. In the early 2000s, she and Trini Woodall had us revamping our wardrobes in What Not to Wear, the makeover show that launched all makeover shows. She's now a novelist, journalist and podcaster, and she's captured some of the more colourful stories of her life in her autobiography, Ready for Absolutely Nothing. Did she, I wondered, enjoy writing it all down? I loved every moment of it. More than anything else was the process of writing it. And... um I've got this friend and she comes from a completely different background from me. So I would talk about things that had happened in my life that I thought were really mundane because I took them for granted. And she'd be like, oh, my God, you've got to talk about how you can build a fire from scratch or know how to gut a rabbit after a a dog's caught it, all these things. And, you know, the fact she was the person who pointed out that she said, you really were ready for absolutely nothing. Obviously, people know you from when you appeared on TV, which was, what, a bit over 20 years ago, 20-odd years ago. Uh, but your life before that is kind of more interesting. It's extraordinary. When you put it all together, were you a bit gobsmacked seeing it all on the page? Totally, Graham. It was as much of a surprise to me as it will be and has been to people who have read the book. And looking at it today... I did have the most extraordinary life. And yes, it was privileged and all these things. Just the people I met and all these sort of moments of social history that I was party to was a revelation. And in terms of reading the audiobook, was this harder or easier than voicing your novels? I think I tried harder. I mean, in my novels, it's like the first one, After the Snow, I was like, I was reading it and I was going in the studio and I go, oh, for God's sake, if this effing child doesn't stop asking for her mother and the guy, the producer <laughs> saying, well, you wrote the book. And um, I never felt that at all with this. It was intense because you have to concentrate so much. It wasn't cathartic in any way and I didn't get emotional at all, really. Oh, you didn't? Oh, that surprises me. Yeah, the only part I did get emotional because um, I'm a recovering alcoholic and it was looking at 
the impact my alcoholism had on my children, in particular my youngest daughter, Susie, and that bit. And then also when my mum died. So that was quite poignant. And it strikes me that, you know, it's one thing doing a novel, you've got to create the voices for characters. But your book is littered with famous people, people we've heard of, we know what they sound like. So were you trying to do impressions? Were you giving <laughs> us your Princess Margaret? <laughs> no, I, I wasn't. I could do Princess Margaret, and I could probably do Elton John. But Anything else, like Mrs. A, who is sort of my surrogate mum, who looked after my family, I couldn't really do her Scottish accent. And so I did question as to whether to get, you know, an actress to do it for me, because I just thought, okay, well, I'm not going to do this book justice. But actually, in retrospect, I'm I'm really happy I did do it, because I think, as you know, Graham, it, it makes a big difference when you read it yourself. And obviously, it's your story, but it's other people's stories too. As I say, it's littered with the great and the good. Did you check any of these stories with, I don't know, the royal family, or did you check with Elton and David? Yes, I did. And I mean, with David Linley, I sent him a copy of the book when it was too late. <laughs> He knew that I was doing it. And I actually wasn't worried about that because, you know, a big part of the book is a love letter to his mother, Princess Margaret, and also to our relationship. He was our first big love, but I never sent it to Imran Khan when I was writing it. I think he was still Prime Minister of Pakistan. But Elton and David, I sent it to. Elton didn't even bother reading it. (laughs) It's all out there with him anyway. (laughs) Reading, I, I think I've said this to you before, that the thing that shocked me the most is your childhood. It reads like it could have been 150 years ago rather than the, the 60s. That is so true. But it could be. And it's it's because, um, I think because my parents, especially my father, was brought up as if he was um, in the Victorian era. And nothing had changed in the aristocracy we weren't aristocracy but we were you know in that environment especially with my mum who um, had severe bipolar and the way her illness was treated was like Bertha Mason in Jane Eyre I mean if we'd had an attic she probably would have been put in it it was just horrendous you know she never once went to a therapist to talk about it it was just you know dishing out pills to keep her vaguely stable Shocking. Well, listen, talking of childhood, there are some questions we ask uh, all our contributors. When you were young, was there a particular book that kind of saved you, that, a book that kind of turned you on to the world of reading? Well, there was a book that literally turned me on to reading, and um, that was The Delta of Venus by Anais Nin. Oh, wow. Basically, it's a collection of... Um, erotic stories written by this woman who lived in Paris and um, my father had a copy so I started out looking at Playboy that he kept hidden and then I found this book and I liked the cover it was this sort of portrait of this naked woman nothing was shown and I got a little thrill down there when I saw this photograph so I kind of carried on and read it And it was so beautifully written. I just loved the essence, the way it was written in this sort of short form. And in the memoir, you're very frank about the the highs and the lows in your life. And I wondered, in the lows, uh, was reading or books, were they ever a source of solace? Yes, always. And I think that has given me the ability to write. I didn't go to university because my father 
decided I'd be better off learning how to cook a good beef wellington than going to university. And so that's where I learned to write, was through reading voraciously, and I've always loved it. And is there a specific book in there that you would turn to for comfort? That book would be I Am an Island by Tamsin Kalidas. It's so beautifully written. I'm not interested in poetry at all, but this is written poetically, and it's the story of redemption, survival, and she leaves London with her boyfriend to go and um, live on this tiny island in the Hebrides. And it's her survival. And the final book I want to know about is a book that you recommend to people because you feel like it's not well known enough. That would be High Risk by Ben Timberlake. He is someone who it becomes addicted to getting over difficult times and he goes into the sort of physiological and psychological impact pain has. And then he, he decides to get uh, addicted to heroin and he does a lot of research and he thinks he's going to take three months to come off it and five years later he's still an addict. But again, it's written so beautifully it's a bit like the firing of an MDMA-pumped synapse or the adrenaline fueled flick of a safety catch or something. It's thrilling and brilliant. Susanna Constantine on being ready for absolutely nothing and the book she loves. It's nearly the moment to call time on this meeting of the book club, but before the shutters come down and we put the chairs on the tables, audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson is here with a few last orders. Holly, what is good on the chart menu this time? Can't tell you if it's tasty, but our big hitter is David Goggins. He's an ultramarathon runner and a retired Navy SEAL and a huge best-selling author. So his first book, Can't Hurt Me, followed his struggles and triumphs against prejudice and poverty. And it's been in the most sold non-fiction chart almost since it came out a couple of years ago. Wow. It has been, yeah, particularly high up in the last six months. And that success is going to be cemented by the release of his new book, Never Finished, Unshackle Your Mind and Win the War Within. Um, the first line of the description of this one is... This is not a self-help book. It's a wake-up call, uh, which I can only imagine being (laughs) shouted at me army style. Anyway, the audio version of this has leapfrogged above Can't Hurt Me and is high in the overall charts. So I think David is a charts fixture for the foreseeable. Mm, It sounds utterly resistible, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, what next to tantalise our taste buds? So next, often... It is really established fantasy authors that make it into the bestsellers in this category, which is why I think we should keep an eye on Babel by R.F. Quang. This came out in 2022 and is Quang's first standalone novel. It had so much buzz from the publisher pre-release and the reviews are now in. And they say it's worth the hype. Okay. It examines language and empire and there's magic in it, in case you're wondering where that fantasy element comes in. All right. So it's been doing pretty well in the overall charts and it was recently number one in urban fantasy and in the fantastically named category Mm -hmm. Sword and Sorcery. So good. (laughs) Um, And that put it ahead of Lord of the Rings. Uh, great claim to fame. It is interesting that the publisher's hype 
actually translated into, into mm. success. Because often, you know, the most buzzy new title, it just they disappear without trace, don't they? I think it was hype <laughs> combined with something that actually fantasy fans were really into. Like when you see that many five stars reviews, you're like, okay, this is this is going to come through for them. All right. Well, I probably won't be overcoming my feelings on fantasy for it, but uh, I'm delighted it's doing so well. And finally, finally. I've got a bit of a slow burn of a book, which has hovered around the mid to the top of the overall charts in both print and audiobook since its release in the autumn. It's called Food for Life, and it's by scientist Tim Spector. Uh, Lots of people probably know him as being behind the Zoe COVID study, Um, but he's actually spent a lot of his career studying the microbiome and in particular gut health. Uh, Amongst other things, the book includes the environmental impact of food, which will explain why it's top in the environment chart. Uh, I think this type of kind of food myth-busting book will become increasingly popular and that this is going to really be a chart regular for a long time. Uh, Tim also seems incredibly likeable and straight-talking. When you started telling me about that book, I was thinking never in a million years. But by the time you finished, I thought, oh, actually, maybe I will. <laughs> maybe I'll give mm. it a... I know, yeah, right? I'll give it a so frisk. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and all the information you need will be right there. And talking of charts, you'll find us on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. So please do spread the word and even better, go along and give us a rating and a review. It helps more people find the loveliness that is us. Our clubbers have gone off to watch Jeff coach Sheevan on his contraction timing. So it just remains for me to thank my birthing partner, Sarah Collins, for helping me bring another episode of the book club into the world. Uh, As a mother, any advice for Sheevan? He probably doesn't need any advice. He's got the easy bit of the job, hasn't he? (laughs) Isn't he just going to be standing around drinking cups of tea? (laughs) Just make sure you don't get in the way and annoy anyone. (laughs) Uh, Please join us next time when, amongst other things, we'll be talking about Sheevan's choice of Tobias Wolff's old school and none other than Craig David. We'll be asking, what's your vibe? Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) 